Hello, welcome to Think Therapy. Join us as we chat with healthcare leaders and learn more about trends in the industry. This podcast is brought to you by Therapy Brands, practice management software made easy. Hello, everyone. This is Renee Rosso, VP of Marketing for Therapy Brands. Welcome to the show today. I'm here with Heidi Arthur for part two of our series, Mental Health Crisis in Our Youth. Heidi is a principal of Health Management Associates, and I encourage you to go back to episode one of season two to hear her full bio. You can also visit healthmanagement.com to learn more about how they impact the healthcare industry overall. Hello, Heidi. Thanks for coming back to continue the conversation with me today. Hello, Renee. Thank you for having me back. So I want to jump right in. We quickly discovered we had a lot more to talk about after our last episode. And in preparation for today, I wanted to do a little bit more reading. I was really startled to find the prevalence of mental health and how it's impacting our children in early childhood. So I wanted to kick off the conversation with asking you, how early do you think mental health begins to impact our youth? That's such a great question, Renee, and I think it's such an important question because a lot of our efforts at the systems level really are waiting for problems to be very evident. You know, the a lot of kids externalize their symptoms of poor mental health. Um, their dysregulation is, you know, acting out behaviors, very um, uh, oppositional defiance. They end up sort of having big explosive outbursts and behaviors and, and dysregulation that's very evident. While other children are internalizing their symptoms, they're withdrawn, they pull away, they shut down, they can't learn. And there's a real sort of I think a confluence of learning issues and behavioral health needs that often doesn't get identified until kids go to school. And there's sort of an an external, you know, sort of a focus on their ability to learn from a teacher or school. But we can identify that there are issues with dysregulation and issues with sensory vulnerabilities and sensitivities in infancy, in infancy. And so from, I would say, the time that a person is pregnant, our best, our best sort of upstream intervention to avoid the preventable behavioral health issues that we later deal with, ideally in, in, in elementary school, if, if we, we often miss them there, like I said, you know, a lot of kids get overlooked, we're not dealing with it until we've got juvenile issues and, you know, um, real difficult consequences for kids in later adolescence and, and, and even beyond. So if we look at who's in our homeless shelters, who's in our criminal justice systems, a lot of times it's folks who've had undiagnosed, untreated mental health concerns all throughout their young lives. But we can see, you know, my child, you know, we spoke about my child's mental health issues. I had a baby that, you know, she would cry so hard that I would shut the windows even in the middle of summer because I was afraid that people would think I was hurting my baby because there was no... There was no ex- explanation for the screaming. And so you run up all the, the possible physical causes, got someone who can't, who can't describe their dysregulation. And so learning how to comfort, how to soothe, and, and there are interventions, dyadic interventions that actually many states are beginning to cover with Medicaid funding that can really help parents and kids sort of co-regulate and begin to you know, sort of learn some of those, those strategies to help kids avoid problems down the road. Wow. So even as early as 
while still in the womb. And so do we know anything about what it is that contributes to these factors? Is it, is it just, you know, genetics? Is it just something neurological? Can a mother's well-being impact the baby's well-being? Go into that a little bit more. Certainly. So there's definitely quite a bit of research on the impact of postpartum depression and maternal and paternal depression on child mental health and well-being. Um, you can imagine when parents are themselves not able to regulate and sort of meet their own functional needs, it's very difficult for them to meet the needs of an infant and be responsive in the way that really does build healthy attachment, you know, sort of the understanding of, you know, sort of emotional states, helping children feel validated with their emotions. You know, when you've got sort of a dysregulated system, it, it's, it's almost like it's, a, it's an amplifying effect. And then if you have that dysregulated system within a dysregulated environment, and you've got impact from things like chronic stress, community violence, difficulty with poverty, housing insecurity, food insecurity. You can just imagine the knock-on impacts. And we do, we talk about toxic stress and how those layered effects build and grow and we end up with, with children who really are challenged because of their multiple adverse childhood experiences and their parents' multiple ch adverse childhood experiences. Those ACEs really are kind of a, a pile on. And what we can do with some really amazing interventions like Healthy Steps, which is a zero to three national initiative, actually puts a specialist in child behavioral health into a pediatric clinic so that from that very first, you know, when you have your baby and you go into the doctor all the time for all of those well visits and follow-ups at each visit, imagine, I mean, we each look back and imagine that during that well visit with the pediatrician, there was a check-in, you know, mom, how are you doing? How are things going for you with this baby? Let's talk through some strategies for how you can take care of yourself, how you can respond to this infant, what are some challenges with breastfeeding, with sleeping through the night? Like those kind of basic things that a lot of people are referring to, to the internet or, you know, getting information from friends. But if you had a place where you were kind of going, where if there were needs identified in that family, they could be addressed with even referrals to a specialty mental health provider, referrals for housing support, for food assistance, for TANF benefits, for you know all the things that family needs to really wrap around the supports that could be helpful to them. You can imagine the impact that could have, not just for that family and its ability to meet that infant's needs, but for that infant and feeling secure, stable, and having what he or she needs in order to grow and develop in, 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 in healthy ways. Wow. So what is the government doing to ensure these types of programs like Healthy Steps are put in place across the country? Are we still at a state-by-state -state level? Is this something that has been mandated? Give us a little more detail. Oh, I, I love that you asked that question, Renee. And, you know, 
my background is actually in federal grant writing. And so, um, you know, as a social worker, you know, I did qu quite a bit of direct practice and quite a bit of work at sort of like the systems level. And then I started really applying that because there are multiple federal grant opportunities that enable um, institutions and organizations to apply for funding to implement um, programming that does provide access to community health workers and to um, behavioral health specialists, just like the, the, the those that implement the Healthy Steps model. Those often are evident and available in pockets of excellence or in areas where there's really high need, high volume. And so it does tend to be a little bit of luck of the draw. You know, if a mother happens to go to one hospital to deliver her baby versus another, it's a bit of a crapshoot. You know, is she gonna get access to, you know, a, a real wraparound set of services and that kind of like consistent ongoing um, uh, screening assessment and referral. However, as these pockets, you know, the federal government with the grant programs, basically they, they, they pilot and then they scale initiatives that work. And then as we start to see increasing evidence, it's kind of a no brainer that the states start to look at that and say, wow, we've really got something here that we want to institutionalize and create access for everybody. And that's when it waiver programs through our state plan and amendments at the state level can actually build waivers into the Medicaid program that enable new new services like this to be a part of a person's actual Medicaid benefit program based on their eligibility and the factors that necessitate those services being applied to them. And then you get the real lift because managed care organizations that are that are you know sort of overseeing that benefit have to ensure access for everybody to those services for which they're eligible and that's when we really get some exciting scaling and real real equitable access to those kinds of interventions all right wow so talk to me a little bit about beyond zero to three. So, uh, you know, what my understanding is from our conversation is that from zero to three, we're really looking at the intervention of the pediatrician and, you know, some of these programs being in, in place. From three to six, let's take that set. If you are a parent or provider who is dealing with a child, what are some of the things that we need to be looking for that would indicate the need for intervention? Oh, that's such a, such a, again, a great question. From, from three to six, you know, that's sort of the preschool ages. And I think that, you know, when kids are really evidently having a difficult time managing their emotional state and, and really being able to participate in activities with peers and, and feel joyful throughout the day. I mean, obviously with a toddler, you're going to see something that looks like <laughs> who looks like, you know, we've, we've said, you know, toddlers are like little drunk adults. So it's, it's, it's hard to tease out, you know, especially when you've only got one kid and you're not necessarily around other people, it's hard to, you know, tell what's normal and what's like really kind of problematic. My, my kids, very seasoned pre-K teacher, I, re I recall her saying, I have never seen a child scream so much for so long and apparently for no reason. And so that same kind of like inexplicable dysregulation, just like what? And I can remember saying to my kid, stop screaming, stop screaming, which of course is not helpful. You know, I, if I could roll back the, the clock, I would say, I see you're distressed. I'm with you in this, in this moment. 
I, I, this will pass, you know, let's be here together. But looking back, I think it's fairly evident to most people looking at a child's sort of, you know, experience in the world, parents will get a gut feeling. I had a gut feeling and I, I actually did have my kid um, screened by early intervention and we were looking at speech there. We were, we were doing some of those things. Very much, it gets very fuzzy around what's developmental, what's sensory, what's emotional, what's, and it's really, there's, I, I kind of imagined that there was a place where they could kind of like do some big diagnostic assessment and tease it out and tell me, you know, here's what your kid, you know, they, and that just, as far as I could tell, as a person really running it up the flagpole, going to like the best, you know, kinds of assessment centers, et cetera, that really didn't exist. That really, we're, we're at a very early stage of understanding mental health and it is a big mismatch. And so you'll get behavioral health therapeutic pre you know, preschools do exist, but you're to, to kind of qualify for that. My kid didn't even qualify for early intervention services. I mean, you've really got to have very obvious behavioral issues to, to hit that threshold. But I think most parents will, will understand when there's an issue and, and can seek mental health supports for themselves. There's often a zero to five early mental health program and access for families through services like that, where the, the, the treatment is actually for parents with the child and often strategies just to help the parent regulate so that they can regulate with their, with their child. Yeah. I think what's sticking out to me is I remember being a child of the sixties and seventies for me, you know, I had a, a brother who was considered the difficult one. And, uh, you know, it was more, I was raised in the military. My father was in the military and it was more of a subdue him by physical punishment. That was very popular back in the time, spanking and the whatnot. And that's how we were subdued and dealt with back in those times. As we evolve as a population, as we begin to reduce the stigma and educate more about mental health, I would imagine that this prevalence of needing to educate young and new parents even more is just going to become absolutely mandatory as we move forward because it's not, oh, she's just colicky, which you hear with uh, many parents about screaming babies or, oh, you know, he's uh, just tired. You know, there's often this ignorance that creates this lack of proper care. So speak to me a little bit about programs that are up and coming to just educate parents on what does it actually mean when this child is being difficult, that it's not just colic or, you know, tiredness. You know, I think that increasingly we're the, the, the mental health system of the future is not going to be this separate thing because our bodies are not separate from our minds. And as we evolve as a population, it's increasingly evident to all of us that when we're centered and balanced in our bodies and minds, we are able to function more effectively and engage more appropriately and just sort of generally, um, you know, be effective and communicate well. And I think that increasingly, we're going to be seeing mental health integrated in primary care and in pediatric care. And I think that eventually their programs are not going to be the separate thing that is reserved for those folks who are at risk or in need. When I had 
my pregnancies and, and my children, nobody, you know, knocked on my door and offered, you know, a home visit or provided that, however, is increasingly becoming an expected, you know, a doula who is, you know, sort of a pr- available to support people during pregnancy and to, you know, kind of help them prepare for what it's like, because babies do scream and that's normal, um, but helping them prepare for for kind of knowing what to look for and how to, you know, kind of take care of themselves and to be taken care of during that that sort of vulnerable period of, of peri and postnatal planning. So I think that increasingly that kind of well-being support is going to be more available to, to more of us. And I think that in the future, there will be more of an understanding that when a parent says, you know, I'm concerned my child seems to be anxious, my, my three-year-old, my six-year-old nightmares are waking them up at night. They're, they're you know, expressing a lot of concern to the point where they don't want to go out with friends. They, they're wanting to sort of stay close to me and having trouble separating at the school where that won't be sort of, you know, brushed under the carpet and swept away, but will be not pathologized and like, oh, you needed a referral to, but will be addressed with real evidence-based research informed interventions that can help make that easier and help help kids build those skills and help parents build those strategies earlier on so we don't have sort of chronically dysregulated kids in a state of kind of constant arousal being met with you're doing it wrong just listen you know, act, get in line, you know, with, without having that kind of punitive response from the systems that are there meant to take care of them. That's what I see in the future. I love, yeah, I love that you said our physical and mental health will no longer be separate. That just rings so true to me. And we're actually beginning to see in healthcare new models of care pop up where we have multi-specialty practices, where you have your pediatrician, your general practitioner, your behavioral health practitioner, and other specialists all practicing together as one practice. And I think that to your point, moving forward in the future, my guess is that will become much more prevalent and we'll be able to go see the pediatrician with our child and him bring the behavioral health care provider right in to the to the appointment and provide care at the same time. That is something that I think is very exciting and very much necessary if we're going to continue to make progress. Any thoughts on that? I agree, absolutely. And we are co-locating mental health in primary care and pediatric care already that's happening. The other thing that's happening is is pediatricians and primary care providers are getting consultation support to do some screening and their own treatment of some conditions right there in the pediatric practice. I know when I asked my pediatrician, you know, my kid is having stomach aches. They're having, you know, really like episodes in the night where they wake up, they're screaming and crying and vomiting. They were having serious panic attacks and and major anxiety, but the pediatric, the sort of medical response to that is let's run every test on the physical health. Let's rule all of that out And then, oh, it's anxiety. Well, now you're going to need to start in a whole new system and figure out what's going to be helpful there. And I think in the future, that pediatrician will say, let's start looking at anxiety and and ways, strategies to help regulate while we also rule out 
the so that because kids can't wait, right? They're developing and growing and, you know, having that experience in that moment and for in kid time, it's 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 not good enough to wait six months you know, half a year to, to try to figure out what's actually going on. And then moving to another system, it's a lot of pediatricians don't even have good referral resources for mental health providers. I mean, we got handed a list of people to call. None of them took our insurance. Our insurance was, you know, the, the you know, finding an in-network provider. There's a huge behavioral health workforce crisis. A lot of areas do not have these specialists. Parents are concerned, do I go to a psychiatrist? Do I go to a social worker? Do I go to a mental health counselor? What are even all of these different you know, criteria? People don't see little kids. People don't. Increasingly, it will be a one-stop where, where folks can have their needs met, regardless of which door they, tend to, you know, they, they happen to walk through. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So moving forward, how would you hope to see mental health therapy for children evolve? How would you hope to see what we, what do we look like rather in, you know, 10, 20 years into the future? Oh, when my grandkids go to school and, you know, hopefully there will be grandkids and there will be, there will be uh, safe schools for them to go to. Schools will ideally, I hope, be safe places, safe places where kids don't have to do lockdown drills, where we've actually made some really important, you know, policy shifts and how we, how we make sure we prioritize and protect child safety. So fundamentally that, that teachers feel safe and kids feel safe in schools. And there are some amazing interventions. Occupational therapy is a, a modality that I think is really under-recognized in the mental health space. And there are some incredible interventions that help to identify, you know, which kids in this school have sensory needs and emotional and, you know, behavioral dysregulation issues that are triggered by things like you know, too much noise or air blowing on them or, you know, how they're engaged in the classroom and, and schools can actually initiate real environmental adjustments that are, that are mild, but major when it comes to how the classroom is regulated. You know, those couple of few kids that can throw it off for everybody and you think, oh, bless that kid's heart, but also my kid <laughs> is being kind of set off by that. Whole schools can as communities really embrace the needs of the entire population by helping the few and really creating some, you know, you've heard about, you know, the, 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 the bench for, um, you know, the kid who needs a friend on the playground, you know, so kids are socially integrating the, you know, you know what I'm talking about, that, that beautiful idea where there's a, a place to sit if you want to be a friend or meet a friend. And, you know, so like you've actually got teachers, not just kind of letting it be a free for all for the social engagement, but really, um, some incredible interventions where, you know, teachers will have, you know, who's your friend this week and can you privately and identify who doesn't feel like they have a friend and then in, integrate, navigate those kinds of like whole of school, ep, you know, efforts can be huge. We're doing a lot of anti-bullying. Let's do pro-social universal interventions. And then like we talked about last time, real mental health training but which has effects for teachers and for staff, offer it for parents. So you've really just, you're inoculating kids from the very earliest ages and helping them really understand and build strategies for emotional and mental wellness. I think that's gonna be the, the biggest thing. And then for those kids who do have 
dysregulatory issues and mental health problems, because some of it is biological and, and, and really not avoidable, there will be in the future a care coordinator that supports families with a single plan of care, access to all the specialty providers and social and human service providers so that everybody's on the same page. A child has a voice, family has a voice, it's their choice how they proceed and they're supported and there's not a lot of barriers, I hope, in the future to how things get paid. Because when we know when there's coverage and access, increasingly certified community behavioral health centers are free and open to all, they're increasingly available. Federal funds started with the grants, started with the demonstration, and then it's it's baked into to, you know sort of the way publicly financed care is delivered. I think in the future, all of that access will be free. And we know we save money when we can prevent the high cost use of emergency rooms and inpatient residential treatment. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Heidi, thanks so much again for coming back for part two, for sharing all of this amazing information with us and providing so much insight into where we're headed and and the needs and the gaps that exist but are um, hopefully going to be filled. Anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners are hearing as we wrap up today's episode? I think... It's, it's exciting if your listeners are folks who can make change in the systems, whether it's the change in the system where they work or the change in the system where their kids go to school or where they themselves are engaged as a helper or provider, there's always something that can be done to improve the system. We have a very, very much in process system of care, and we have a lot of attention in this moment in time on how to improve it. And so I would just encourage people to reach out and, and figure out who can help them figure out what is the most strategic intervention that I can be a champion for that can really kind of make the biggest impact possible in the, in the near and the long term. Um, so I would just I would hope that we all feel called to act and are, are prepared to, to do to do some little thing. It might be in your, your kid's school. It might be in your place of work. It might be where you go to, to worship on the weekends, where, wherever you live in your community, there's, there's something that we can all be doing. Thank you, Heidi, for joining us today. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Think Therapy. Thank you, Renee. That's this week's episode of Think Therapy. For additional resources and solutions for therapists, visit our sponsor at therapybrands.com. Thank you for listening.